0: where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 10 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Henry V, 1413, to 1422. The succession of Henry of Monmouth to his father's throne greatly strengthened the position of the House of Lancaster. The new king had gained the crown by quiet inheritance, not by armed force, and he was not responsible for the cruel death of Richard II and the other crimes by which Henry IV had climbed to power, nor was he the man to imperil the position which he had obtained. He had been working hard both as a warrior and an administrator since his early boyhood, and had received such a training as fell to the lot of none of his predecessors since Edward I. Though courteous and even-tempered, Henry could be stern on occasion. He was just according to his lights, but there can be no doubt that his views were often narrow and purely legal. His rigidly orthodox piety— left no room in his heart for mercy to heretics. His most unjustifiable renewal of the French war and his persecution of the Lollards marked the unsympathetic side of his character. But he was well loved by the majority of his subjects, a ruler, able, orderly, and conscientious, with a strong hand and an infinite capacity for work, was a great boon to the nation. Henry's first acts after his accession were wise and graceful, he released the young Earl of March and restored him to his estates, though there was obviously some danger in setting at liberty a possible rival. He gave back the earldom of Nottingham to John Mowbray, brother of the Thomas Mowbray who had fallen with Scroope in 1405. He brought the body of Richard II to London and had it interred in state beside that of his wife, the good Queen Anne. But soon after, Henry showed that one section of his subjects must expect no favor from him. He authorized Archbishop Arundel to proceed with greater vigor against the unfortunate Lollards. The most noted member of the sect was now Sir John Oldcastle, Lord Cobham, who had been an able and trusted lieutenant of the King during the Welsh wars. Oldcastle, when brought to trial, made a vigorous defense, denouncing the efficacy of penances and pilgrimages, the worship of images, the ambition and ill-living of the Pope, and the greed of the friars. He was pronounced a heretic and sent back to the Tower, but escaped from it before the day fixed for his execution. It seems that, in despair for their future, some of the Lollards now engaged in a plot to seize the king's person and force him to take Oldcastle as his chief minister— It was their design to muster armed men in St. Martin's Fields by night and make a sudden dash at the Palace of Westminster. But the design was betrayed and Henry, occupying the trysting place beforehand, caught or scattered each band as it arrived. Nearly sixty Lollards were executed, the chief being a knight named Sir John Acton. But Oldcastle got away and hid himself on the Welsh border. It was not till some years later that he was captured and executed as both heretic and traitor. When once firmly set upon his throne, King Henry proceeded to turn his attention to foreign politics. Like many other sovereigns in different epochs, he had formed the conclusion that the panacea for internal disorders is a successful war abroad. Nothing would strengthen the House of Lancaster more than a vigorous resumption of the old attacks on France if only they could be carried to a fortunate conclusion. The state of affairs across the Channel seemed to promise an easy task for the invader. The Burgundian and Armagnac factions were waging open war upon each other throughout the land. The king was a hopeless lunatic. His son, the Dauphin Louis, was a dissipated lad of seventeen who had estranged half the people of the land by becoming a hot partisan of the Armagnacs. The prospect of a war with England was regarded with dismay by the French, and when Henry began to tamper with the Burgundians and to speak of renewing the old claims of Edward III, the Dauphin's advisers seemed almost panic stricken. Before a blow had been struck, they offered the King of England the hand of the Princess Catherine with a dowry of eight hundred thousand crowns, and undertook to restore to him all those parts of Guienne and Gascony which had been lost by England since 1370. The Duchy of Aquitaine, as constituted by the Treaty of Bretigny, would have been brought back into being save that Poitou and saint were to remain French. But Henry was bent on war for war's sake, and had no intention of accepting these liberal offers. In 1415, after many months of negotiation. He broke off all relations with France and began to make preparations for invading Normandy. No language can be too strong to use in the condemnation of his greed and ambition. For the political gain of the moment, he condemned England and France to forty years of misery and set on foot a war which was to prove the ruin of his own house. In the summer of 1415, the army of invasion was mustered at Southampton It was admirably equipped and composed of picked men, but its numbers were not large. Only twenty five hundred men-at-arms and seven thousand archers were assembled. They took with them the largest train of artillery that England had yet seen. The host was on the eve of sailing when the kingdom was startled by the news that a dangerous conspiracy against the king's life had been discovered. It had been formed by Richard of York, Earl of Cambridge, the king's cousin. He had married the sister of the Earl of March, and had planned to place his brother-in-law on the throne and rule under his name. March himself, a harmless and unenterprising young man, had no part in the plot. The chief accomplices of Cambridge were Lord Scroop, a kinsman of the Archbishop who had been executed in 1405, and Sir Thomas Grey. They kept their counsel so ill that the king got wind of their designs and arrested them before they were ready to strike. Full proof of their treason being produced, all three were executed. 5th of August, 1415. This plot was a purely dynastic business, the legitimate continuation of the many movements in favor of the House of March which had disturbed the reign of Henry IV. In the middle of August, the army crossed the channel and landed near Arfleur, to which it laid siege. The place made a gallant resistance but received no help from without, though the Dauphin had mustered a large army at Rouen. The English suffered more from the summer heat and from camp fever than from the missiles of their enemies. After a siege of five weeks, the artillery of the besiegers had so shaken the walls that the garrison surrendered. September 22nd, 1415. A good foothold in Normandy had been secured, but meanwhile the season was growing late, and the army was dwindling away. When twelve hundred men had been told off to garrison Arfleur, and the numerous sick and wounded had been sent back to England, only one thousand men at arms and four thousand archers remained available for service in the field. This body was too small for a march on Paris, or a serious attempt to subdue Normandy, and the king resolved to lead them across to Calais and not to advance deeper into France. Such a movement was rather a defiance of the Dauphin and his host than a serious military movement. It would have been better to bring home the army by sea, for the march placed it in grave peril of destruction. King Henry crossed Normandy and Picardy till he came to the Somme which proved as great a barrier to him as it had been to Edward Third in 1346. He was only able to cross it by striking inland as far as Peronne, and while he was making this detour the French army, now commanded by Jean d'Albret, the constable of France, outmarched him and threw itself across his path. Close by the village of Agincourt, the English found the way to Calais blocked by a host of six to eight times their own numbers, It was necessary at all costs to force a passage through them, for the weather had been bad, the army was worn out by long marches, and the provisions were almost exhausted. Accordingly, Henry drew out his little force and offered battle between the villages of Agencourt and Tramcourt, October 25, 1415. He ranged his handful of men-at-arms in three small bodies, each flanked by two wings of archers, and waited to be attacked. The ground between him and the French was rain sodden, ploughed fields, by no means easy to cross, when the knightly armour had grown so heavy that it was no longer a simple matter to march in it. The French, despising the small numbers of their enemies, thought that an easy victory was in their hands. They sent before them, as at Poitiers, two squadrons of mounted men who were to break in upon the flanks and rout the archers, while the main body followed on foot in three dense lines each larger than the whole English army. 25th of October, 1415. The cavalry in advance struggled through the heavy ground till they came in range of the archery, when they were shot down almost to a man without striking a blow. The masses of dismounted knights lurched heavily on in their wake, but were brought to a stand by their fatigue and by the deep clay in which they sank almost to their knees." They halted in exhaustion some distance in front of the English line. Seeing their plight, King Henry made his men advance, and pausing at a convenient distance from the mass, bade his bowmen let fly into it for some minutes, and then to close. The French line of battle, already riddled by the arrow shower, was easily routed by the impact of the charge. The knights were rolled helplessly into heaps, and slain or made prisoners by the lightly armed bowmen who proved far more effective than the men-at-arms on such ground. The moment that the first line was disposed of, Henry pushed on against the second, which made a somewhat better resistance, but was finally broken up and slaughtered like the first. The third line melted from the field without fighting, save a few of its chiefs, who refused to fly and went forward to certain death. While they were being disposed of, an alarm was raised that the English camp was being attacked from the rear, and the king ordered his men to slay their captives and turn back for a new fight. But the diversion was caused only by bands of marauders, who fled when they saw the king moving upon them, so that the slaughter of the prisoners which had been begun proved wholly unnecessary and was stopped. When the field was searched by the victors, they found among the slain the constable and three dukes. Brabant, Bar, and Alençon, with seven counts, ninety barons, and five or six thousand men-at-arms, numbers greater than those of the whole English army. Fifteen hundred prisoners of rank still survived among them the young Duke of Orléans and the Counts of Vendôme, Eux, and Richemont. The English loss was trifling, though two great peers had fallen, Edmund, Duke of York, and Michael, Earl of Suffolk, only thirteen men-at-arms and a hundred archers had perished with them. The heavy armor of the French seems to have been as fatal to their power of striking effective blows as to their ability to move in the sodden ploughland. The arrows pierced their mail with ease, while in close fighting they seemed to have been at an equal disadvantage and were dashed down helplessly by the axes and maces wielded by the bare arms of the archers. The victory seemed to justify Henry's rash march across France, and in the actual fighting his tactical skill had been as evident as his personal courage. But if the French had been commanded by a cautious and capable general, it is hard to see how he could have escaped a disastrous defeat. Henry's army was so small and so exhausted that he could make no immediate use of the victory, and was obliged to march on to Calais and thence take ship to London. He was received with a splendid triumphal procession, but his victory had been more showy than fruitful, and the possession of Arfleur was the only tangible benefit which had resulted from his campaign. The Armagnac party had not been crushed, even by the carnage at Agencourt, and there was some fear that the Burgundians might be driven into opposing England by a tardy revival of patriotic spirit. Arfleur was beset by the French for the whole of the next year and had a narrow escape of falling back into their hands. For the greater part of 1416, Henry was busied with negotiations with the Emperor Sigismund, who visited England full of great plans for restoring peace to Christendom by putting an end to the great schism which had been rending the church in Twain since 1378. Henry gladly lent himself to this scheme, which had taken shape at the Council of Constance. Two popes having been deposed and a third forced to resign, a universally acknowledged pontiff was secured in the person of Martin V, 1417. But the council is better remembered for the burning of John Hus, the great Bohemian reformer and the spiritual heir of Wycliffe, than for its abortive attempt to reform the debased papacy. In return for Henry's assistance in matters ecclesiastical, Sigismund endeavored to negotiate a peace with France on terms favorable to England. But the Armagnacs would not listen to the exorbitant claims of the victor of Agincourt, and the Burgundian duke held aloof, willing to profit by his enemy's misfortunes, but afraid to offend the national spirit of France by an open alliance with England. The war had therefore to continue. Raising an army of about the same size as that of 1415, The king crossed the sea in August, 1417, and began to overrun Normandy. This time he came not to execute a plundering raid, but to conquer the land piecemeal. One after another he took Caen, Lisieux, Bayeux, Alençon, and Mortagne, cutting a huge cantle out of the duchy, in which he established a solid base for further operations. The Armagnacs and Burgundians were fighting hard round Paris and paid no attention to the invader. In the next year, he steadily pushed his sphere of operations to right and left, conquering saint lo Coutances, and Cherbourg in the west, and then turning east to lay siege to the great city of Rouen. He kept stern discipline among his troops and gave such good government to the conquered districts That it contrasted strongly with the anarchy which had prevailed before. Meanwhile, the struggle at Paris had ended in success for the Duke of Burgundy. The populace had risen against his rivals, massacred the Constable Armagnac with many of his party, and driven the rest away. The Duke became, by his victory, responsible for the conduct of the war with England, but showed himself as incapable as the Constable had been of checking King Henry. By allowing the gallant defenders of Rouen to remain unsuckered for six months, he drew upon himself the condemnation of every patriotic Frenchman. In January 1419 the Norman capital fell, reduced by sheer famine, and Henry entered its gates. Then at last did John of Burgundy begin to stir, but it was not an order to raise against the English the whole force of France— to make one last attempt to buy them off by offering more liberal terms than the Armagnacs had offered. But a conference at Mulan, May 1419, revealed that Henry's terms were as exorbitant as ever. He asked for all the lands granted to Edward III by the Treaty of Bretigny and the whole Duchy of Normandy, as well as for the arrears of King John's long unpaid ransom money of 1360. In despair at the arrogant demands of the English king, Burgundy resolved to make peace with the Armagnac faction and unite with them for a last desperate attempt to expel the invader. His enemies were now headed by Charles, the youngest son of the Mad King, who had become Dauphin on the death of his elder brothers. They professed their readiness to come to terms with the Burgundians, but when the two princes met in conference on the bridge of Montereau. 10th of September, 1419, the Dauphin's attendants treacherously fell upon the Duke and hewed him down as he knelt before his cousin. This brutal and senseless murder had the natural result. The Duke's young son, Philip, and all the partisans of Burgundy at once went over to the English side and swore that Charles would never reign over France. Rather than acknowledge the murderer as heir to the throne, They would accept Henry's ill-founded claim and take him as their ruler. All the cities of northern France, where the Burgundians were strong, thus became friendly to the English and opened their gates to the invader. On May twentieth, fourteen twenty, Henry entered Troyes with the young Duke Philip at his right hand, and there met the Queen of France, her insane spouse, and her daughter Catherine, whose hand had been offered to him as far back as fourteen fourteen. The unfortunate Charles VI was made to give his consent to a treaty by which he made Henry regent of France and gave him the right of succession to the throne on his own death to the exclusion of the Dauphin. On June 2nd, the English king married the Princess Catherine in order to give himself some better claim to the crown than the mad king's bequest. After turning his arms against those towns in the neighborhood which still held out for the Armagnacs, and reducing them, Henry brought his bride and his father-in-law to Paris, where he celebrated his Christmas festivities in great state. Early in the spring he returned to England and made a progress through the whole land with his wife to receive the homage and congratulations of his admiring subjects. No king of England had ever wrought such feats of arms, and it seemed that he had carried to a successful end the great war which had cost his predecessors so much fruitless expense of life and wealth. Parliament ratified all the provisions of the Treaty of Troyes with alacrity, not noting, we may suspect, the danger which accompanied it that England might ere long become a mere province of France, for the greater ever draws the less. But it was not long before a jarring note was struck to mar the universal harmony. In April 1422, News came to England of a disaster on the Loire. The king had sent his eldest brother, Thomas, Duke of Clarence, to chase the Dauphinois out of Anjou and Maine, but the enemy had received a large reinforcement from Scotland under the Earl of Bachen, and for the first time since Agincourt, turned to fight in the open. Recklessly pursuing with his archers far to the rear, Clarence ran into an ambush at Bougny, March twenty-first. 1422, and was there surrounded and slain. His companions, the earls of Somerset and Huntingdon, were taken prisoners. The news of this defeat soon drew the king back to France, June of 1422. He marched south and drove the Dauphinois back to Orléans and beyond the Loire. Then he turned to reduce their few remaining strongholds in central France. None of them gave him much trouble save whose garrison made a resistance of unparalleled obstinacy. Henry formed the siege in October, and the town did not yield till May. All through the winter of perpetual rain, he lay before its walls, obstinately refusing to draw back from his flooded trenches. He and his army were smitten with a terrible plague of ague and dysentery, which thinned his ranks even faster than starvation diminished those of the garrison." When spring came, the town yielded, and Henry, showing the stern cruelty, which not unfrequently disfigured his action, hung the governor and four of his companions. He then turned back toward Paris, and ere long his wife and the infant son, whom she had lately borne him, rejoined him. But men saw that he was no longer himself. The hand of death was upon him, for the chills of his winter camp had stricken him with an exhaustion from which he could not rally. He took to his bed in the castle of Vincennes near Paris, and, lingering in a state of utter prostration through the summer heat, died on August 31, 1422, leaving all his great conquests to a weekly child of less than a year old. End of chapter 10